Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. Today's episode of The Glenn Show is going to feature some ads. I'm going to read one now, and you'll hear another one in the middle. This is a new thing, so I want to explain why I'm doing it and how I'm going about it. This show has been free for our first 14 years, free and free of ads. That's changing now for two simple reasons. First, The Glenn Show has grown enormously of late. Advertisers are knocking at our door, taking notice, and making some appealing offers. Second, those offers make it possible for the show to generate a non-trivial amount of income. And this, in turn, leaves me less dependent on the institutions that pay my salary and frees up my time to enhance the content of this podcast and our associated Substack newsletter. Let me be clear. I'm proud to be associated with those salary-paying institutions, Brown University, the Hoover Institution, the Manhattan Institute, and so on. But the plain fact is that given today's cultural climate, even tenure doesn't guarantee that one will always be able to express himself without fear of reprisal. In other words, I'm doing ads not to change The Glenn Show, but to ensure that it doesn't change. This is still the same Glenn and the same John. Ads will actually make it easier for things to remain that way. I'm also going to be judicious about choosing the products and services that I advertise. You won't be hearing from me about any product or service that I don't actually believe in. Finally, here's some good news. While the ads aren't a bad source of revenue and independence, a supportive audience is an even better one. So if you don't want to hear the ads, consider becoming a paying subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. Apart from ad-free versions of the show, you will also receive my weekly podcast five days earlier than the general public on Mondays instead of Fridays of each week. You'll receive the opportunity to ask questions of John and myself at our monthly Q&A and access to occasional subscriber-only posts and more benefits as I devise them. Now, if you're already a paying subscriber on Substack, all you have to do to continue receiving your benefits is the following. When you open a post at glennlowry.substack.com that features a podcast episode, look for the link that says, listen in podcast app below the player. This will allow you to subscribe to the ad-free podcast feed that includes monthly Q&A episodes, early access to regular episodes, and potentially subscriber-only audio offerings. With all of that out of the way, the first sponsor of today's episode is The Spectator Magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest-running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the Spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free Spectator hat. Just use offer code GLENN, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. 
go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code Glenn. I've been aware of The Spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors, from Christopher Buckley to P.J. O'Rourke to Douglas Murray to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to culture of cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. Thanks for tuning in to The Glenn Show. Just a quick announcement before this week's post. John McWhorter and I usually appear every other week and we are scheduled to appear this week. We're postponing by one week. Next week, we will be interviewing Randall Kennedy about his new book and the conversation that we promised to have about systemic racism will take place in our following appearance which is three weeks from now. We're just putting that off a little bit so that we can talk about Kennedy's book. This week, in lieu of my conversation with John McWhorter, I'm posting a, a, a lecture that I gave at uh, Baylor University at their Center for the Study of Free Enterprise on capitalism and race. So that's what you have in front of you this week. Next week, John McWhorter and I will be back interviewing Randall Kennedy. And in three weeks, John McWhorter and I will be back having our conversation about what do we make of systemic racism. Meanwhile, just one other note. Some of you continue to support me at patreon.com and I deeply appreciate it. But you're not getting any, anything for your money anymore at Patreon. If you want to continue to support me, I'm not going to argue with you. But the smart thing to do would be to cancel your uh, subscription there and to follow me at glennlowry.substack.com where you can subscribe as a supporter of The Glenn Show. Uh, also, you can find The Glenn Show's video content at my YouTube channel which is YouTube slash C slash Glenn Lowry Show. Thank you. Uh, I've given the title here, Thoughts on the Persistence of Racial Inequality in America. I want to begin with a provocative claim. Structural racism, about which we hear so much these days, is an empty category. The phrase is used as both a bluff and a bludgeon. It's a bluff in that it explains nothing while, in effect, daring the listener to notice. For example, when someone says structural racism is the reason why there are so many Blacks in prison, the listener is being dared to reply, no, it's actually because there are so many Black criminals. And it's a bludgeon because its use involves rhetorical intimidation. Having demonstrated no cause and effect processes, it insinuates 
shadowy causes that are never fully specified. Everybody's just supposed to know that racial disparities are the fault of something called structural racism, abetted by an environment of white privilege, supported by the ultimate bugaboo, white supremacy. George Orwell, the author of the classic 1984, would have seen this way of talking as a version of his new speak, the use of ambiguous and euphemistic language as a kind of political propaganda. History, I must say, is rather more complicated and more interesting than such just so tales would have it. The outcomes of concern here have multiple interacting causes, but people declaring that structural racism explains racial disparities don't make arguments, rather they evince a disposition. They are calling us to solidarity. They are soliciting our fealty. They seek to compel our affirmation of a system of belief. So in this lecture, I'm going to sketch an alternative account of enduring racial disparities. Now I warn you, I am an economic theorist first and foremost. So my focus here will be conceptual, not empirical. I think we economists need to specify the appropriate model for understanding long enduring racial economic disparities. And so I aim to contribute to that objective in the remarks that follow. As you will see, I do not mince words. Now, why I wanna ask, the success of the civil rights movement notwithstanding has the unequal economic status of black Americans persisted into the 21st century. Clear thinking about this difficult problem requires that we distinguish between the role played by anti-Black discrimination, past and present, and the role of behavioral patterns to be found among some Black people. Now, I admit that this puts a very sensitive issue rather starkly. I will be charting a middle course by acknowledging anti-Black biases and insisting they be remedied but also urging that we also identify the behavioral patterns that prevent some people from seizing newly opened opportunities. In recent writings, I have recast these two positions as causal narratives. The bias narrative argues that the root cause of persisting disparity is found in anti-Black racism. Racial discrimination causes racial inequality, so we have to reform society to achieve a level playing field. It focuses on the demand side of the labor market, for instance. I think such reforms have been necessary, but I think they are not sufficient. The development narrative, by contrast, is concerned with how people acquire skills, traits, habits, and orientations that foster their successful participation in society. Its focus is the supply side of the labor market. Its premise is that those who lack the experiences, who are not exposed to the influences, who do not have access to the resources that foster and facilitate their human development will in general fail to achieve their full potential. Of course, these two narratives, the bias narrative and the development narrative need not be mutually exclusive, but what is clear is that they point in different directions in terms of intervention and remedy. I'm gonna be advocating for thinking about this problem through the lens of the development narrative. 
This tension between a focus on demand side versus supply side factors to account for racial disparities is a very old theme for me. It is what led me to coin the term social capital in my doctoral dissertation back at MIT in the 1970s. In doing so, I was contrasting that concept, social capital, with the more familiar notion to economists, human capital. As you may know, human capital theory studies inequality via a conceptual framework that was initially developed to explain investment decisions by firms, and that focuses on formal economic transactions. I thought that this framework was not adequate when applied to explaining persistent racial economic disparities. I believe my concerns then remain relevant today. And so I'll use my time here to explore these ideas more fully. My basic point in that thesis was that associating business with human investments is merely an analogy, not an identity, particularly when thinking about persistent racial disparities. Business investments are transactional. Human investments are essentially relational. So important things were overlooked in the human capital approach, things having to do with informal social relations. Conventional theory, I thought, was incomplete when accounting for racial disparities, and there were two aspects of this incompleteness, which led me to make two observations, one about the dynamics of human development and the other about the nature of racial identity. I wish to reiterate these observations because they remain relevant today. First, about the dynamics of human development. My first observation was that all human development is socially situated and mediated. The development of human beings occurs inside of social institutions. It is dialogic. It takes place as between people by way of human interaction. The family, the community, the school, the peer group. It is inside these cultural institutions of human association where development is achieved. Resources essential to human development, the attention that a parent gives to her child, for instance, are not alienable. Developmental resources for the most part are not commodities. The development of human beings is not up for sale. Rather, networks of connections between people create the context within which developmental resources come to be allocated to individual persons. Opportunity travels along the synapses of these social networks. People are not machines. Their productivity, that is, the behavioral and cognitive capacities that bear on their social and economic functioning, are not merely the result of some mechanical infusion of material resources. Rather, these capacities come about largely as the byproducts of social interaction mediated by human affiliation and connectivity. This point was fundamentally important, I thought, and still think for understanding persistent racial disparities in America. That was the first point I was making all those years ago about the incompleteness of human capital theory. But my second observation is also important. My second observation was that what we call race in America is mainly a social and only indirectly a biological 
phenomenon. The persistence across generations of racial differentiation between large groups of people in an open society where people live in close proximity to one another provides irrefutable indirect evidence of a profound separation between the racially defined networks of social affiliation in that society. Because there would be no races in the steady state of any dynamical social system unless on a daily basis and in regard to their most intimate affairs, people paid close attention to the boundaries separating themselves from racially distinct others. This is so because over time, race would simply cease to exist unless people were acting so as biologically to reproduce the variety of phenotypic expression that constitutes the substance of racial distinction. I cannot overemphasize this second sociological point. We speak casually about racial equality and racial justice, and yet race is not something simply given in nature. Rather, it is socially produced. It is something we are making. That there exist distinct races and is an equilibrium outcome. It's endogenous. It follows that if the goal is to understand the roots of durable racial inequality in any society, we should examine in some detail the processes that cause race to persist as a fact in that society. Almost certainly, such processes will not be unrelated to the allocation among individuals of human developmental resources. So here is my second observation in a nutshell. We economists need to recognize the limits of our tools to account for durable economic disparities by race. The creation and reproduction of such inequality ultimately rests on cultural conceptions that people hold about identity, about the desirability and legitimacy of conducting intimate relations with racially distinct others. And here, I do not only mean sexual relations. Racial inequality is not just a disparity of material resources. Most fundamentally, it is rooted in the decisions that we are all making about with whom to associate and with whom to identify. Such anyway was the gist of my argument. The contrast that I drew in my doctoral thesis all those years ago between human and social capital was grounded in my conviction that such decisions determine the access that people enjoy to the informal resources they require to develop their human potential. And so what I was calling social capital when I coined that term in 1976 is, on this view, an essential prerequisite for creating what economists refer to as human capital. As economists, we know that human capital, a person's skills, education, work experience, and social aptitudes is a key determinant of that person's earnings power and of his or her capacity to generate and to accumulate wealth. Social capital is, in my mind, an extension of human capital theory. The resources people need for their development are not all commodities, as I've said, that can be acquired in markets as a result of transactions. Some of those resources are embedded in a person's social situation. For example, the resource of a mother's attention to her health when a child is in her womb, 
the resource of peers with whom one associates and the things they valorize, which then become important things shaping the choices one makes about the acquisition of skills. The resource of information about what is possible to achieve that comes about from one's connection to others who have explored those possibilities. These things are also factors of the production of human skill or inputs, if you will, into that process of production. But these things are not commodities, as I have said. So a financial deficit does not fully capture a deficit of these things. This was the idea I wanted to employ to give an account of durable racial inequality, even after eliminating most overt market discrimination. I wrote that dissertation in the mid-1970s, just a decade beyond the big civil rights laws and quite early in this era of relatively fair market opportunities for people, irrespective of race, the era in which we live now. This post-civil rights era is more than a half century old now. I'm not saying that things are perfect in terms of racial equality of treatment, but they are very, very close to being perfect, especially when compared to the historical circumstance. Obviously, there's work to do, but it is a relatively level playing field now in terms of the valuation of skills. So the question before us is whether the disparities that history has produced for Black people will necessarily wither away under this new dispensation. My answer is no, they needn't, because the labor market, the credit market, the housing market, and the final goods markets are not the whole show. Also important are peers, neighborhoods, and communities, the structure of families, the nature of values and norms, notions of identity, social resources, who you're connected to, who you can call upon, who influences you, who informs you. These things matter. Books in the home, whether the children are read to, when does a parent turn off the television set? My social capital concept is a tool for thinking about inequality and its remedies. It disciplines our thinking so as to appreciate the limits of regulatory control when developmental outcomes are the byproducts of non-market processes. It shifts the conversation somewhat away from a purely redistributive focus to a relational focus. I am not saying that people without money have no need of it. What I'm saying is that money is not the only thing they need. Capitalist laissez-faire may sometimes be an enemy, but the death of God is never our friend. Talking in this way is not blaming the victim. It's having one's eyes wide open to the reality of our social life. Oppressed groups time and again evolve notions of identity that cut against the mainstream. A culture can develop among them, inhibiting youngsters from taking the actions needed to develop their talent. Now I ask, do kids in a segregated dysfunctional peer group simply have their own utility functions? I think it's a mistake to attribute the dysfunctional behavior of an historically oppressed group of people to simply them having the wrong preferences when those preferences have emerged from a set of historical experiences that reflect the larger society's social structures and activities. But, and this is critical, by the same token, 
it's a grievous error to ignore the consequences of such behavior or to pretend that the behavior doesn't exist as many anti-racism advocates are doing. I want now to shift to a slightly different point. By ignoring those behavioral maladies characteristic of some quarters of African-American society, those who downplayed this behavioral disparities by race are bluffing. Behavioral issues afflicting Black communities are real and must be faced squarely if one is to grasp why racial disparities persist. Self-evidently, the young men who are killing each other on the mean streets of St. Louis, Baltimore, and Chicago, and many other places are behaving abominably. Those bearing the cost of such behavior are mainly Black people. As I have said, an ideology ascribing that behavior to racism ultimately is a bluff. It can't be taken seriously by serious people. Nobody believes it, not really. Consider, for another example, educational test score data. Anti-racism advocates are in effect daring you to say that some groups are represented at elite universities and outsized numbers compared to other groups because their academic preparation is simply magnitudes higher and finer and better. This kind of excellence is an achievement. One is not born knowing these things. One acquires such knowledge through effort. Why some youngsters have acquired these skills while others have not is a deep and interesting question, one which I'm quite prepared to entertain. But the simple retort, racism, is laughable, it, 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 as if such disparities have nothing to do with behavior, with cultural patterns, with what communities and peer groups value, with how people are spending their time, with what they identify as being critical to their own self-respect. Asian Americans are said sardonically to be a model minority. Well, as a matter of fact, a pretty compelling case can be made that culture is critical to their success. Don't just take my word for it. Read Jennifer Lee and Min Zhou's book, The Asian American Achievement Paradox. They interviewed Asian families in Southern California trying to learn how these kids get into Dartmouth and Columbia and Cornell at such high rates. What they find is that these families do in fact exhibit cultural patterns, embrace values, adopt practices, engage in behaviors and follow disciplines that orient them so as to facilitate the achievements of their children. It defies common sense as well as the evidence to assert that they do not, or conversely, to assert that the paucity of African-Americans performing at the very top of the intellectual spectrum, I'm talking here about excellence and about the relative low number of Blacks who exhibit it, has nothing to do with the behavior of Black people that this outcome is due entirely to institutional forces. That, frankly, is an absurdity. Nobody really believes it. Neither does anyone believe that 70% of African-American babies being born to a woman without a husband is, one, a good thing, nobody really thinks it's okay, or two, is due to anti-Black racism. 
They say it, but they don't really believe it. They're bluffing. They're daring you to observe that 21st century failures of African-Americans to take full advantage of the opportunities that have been created by the 20th century's revolution of civil rights are palpable and damning. And yet these failures are being denied at every turn. This is not a tenable position. The end of Jim Crow segregation and the advent of equal rights for black people was a game changer. That now, a half century down the line from this, we still face these disparities is shameful. The plain fact is that much of the responsibility for this sorry state of affairs lies with the behaviors of black people ourselves. I take no pleasure in saying this. I'm simply trying to stay in touch with reality. But the anti-racism crusaders refuse to acknowledge that reality. I would add that there is an assumption in all of this rhetoric about anti-racism of black fragility, or at least of the lack of resilience among black people. This assumption lurks behind these anti-racism arguments. Blacks are often treated like infants whom one dares not to touch, one dares not to say the wrong word in front of us, dares not to say the things that I've already said in this lecture to ask any questions that might offend us, to demand anything from us for fear that we will be so adversely impacted by that. The presumption is that black people lack resilience, cannot be dealt with like adults and are disagreed with, criticized, called to account, ask for anything. No one will ask black people, for example, what do you owe America? How about not just what does America owe us, reparations for slavery, et cetera, what do we owe America? How about our duty? How about honoring our country? When you take agency away from people, you remove the possibility of holding them to account and the capacity to maintain judgment and standards so that you can evaluate what they do. If a youngster who happens to be black has no choice about whether or not to join a gang, pick up a gun or become a criminal because, quote, society, close quote, has failed him by not providing adequate housing, health care, income support, job opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Then it becomes impossible to discriminate as between those Black youngsters who do and do not pick up guns and become members of gangs under those conditions. It becomes impossible to maintain within African-American society a judgment of our fellows' behavior. It becomes impossible to affirm expectations of right living because after all, we're all supposedly victims of anti-Black racism. We're leveled down by a common lack of agency in this way of looking at the world, a lack, presumed lack of control over our lives, a lack of accountability for what we do. This is not a path to equality. What is more, there's a deep irony in first declaring white America to be systemically and essentially racist, and then mounting a campaign to demand that whites recognize their own racism and deliver us from the consequences of it. If indeed you're right that your oppressors are racist, why would you expect them to respond to a moral appeal? 
You are, in effect, putting yourself on the mercy of the court while simultaneously decrying that the court is biased. Much of the anti-racism arguments that I've seen people make that have become very widely accepted, I could name names, but you know who they are, um, are of this sort. There's no possibility. Don't believe in the American dream. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't buy the narrative. America's a gangster republic. America's an intrinsically racist society. It'll never recognize our humanity. This kind of idea is profoundly empowering, and it's also false characterization of this dynamic and vital and free and open society. I am reminded amidst the contemporary turmoil of the period after emancipation more than 150 years ago. There was a brief moment of pro-Friedman sentiment during Reconstruction in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, but it was washed away. And the long, dark night of Jim Crow emerged. Blacks were set back. But in the wake of this setback emerged the development of some of the greatest achievements of African-American history. Thus, the freedmen, who had been liberated from slavery in 1863, were almost universally illiterate. Within a half century, their increased literacy rate rivals anything that has been seen in the modern world in terms of a mass population acquiring the capacity to read. Now, that was a really significant achievement because it helped bring them into the modern world. We now look at the Black family lamenting the high rates of births to mothers who are not married and so forth, but that is a modern post-1960 phenomenon. In fact, the health of the African-American social fiber coming out of slavery was remarkable. Books have been written about this. Moreover, businesses were built. People acquired land. They educated their children. They acquired skills. They constantly faced opposition at every step along the way. No blacks need apply. Whites only this and that and the other. And nevertheless, they built a foundation from which could be launched a civil rights movement in the middle of the 20th century that would change the politics of the country forever. That potentiality is now forgotten as we throw ourselves, like I said, on the mercy of the court. There's nothing we can do. We're prostrate here. Our kids are not doing well. Our communities are troubled. But here we are, and we ask that you save us. This is the very same population about which such a noble history can be told. So pull yourselves up by the bootstrap. Eh, that's a kind of cliche, and people will laugh when you say it. They'll roll their eyes. Take responsibility for your life. No one's coming to save you. It's not anybody else's job to raise your children. It's not anyone else's job to pick up the trash from in front of your home, et cetera, et cetera. You want wealth? Start a business. Take responsibility for your life. That, frankly, is a message that we need to hear more and more today in the Black community. Perhaps the messenger should be a black person as well. I expect if you want the message to be heard, that would be helpful. But that I think is the reality of our condition. We must take responsibility for our fate. We must take responsibility for our children. 
this is not fair in light of history's mistreatment of Black people in this country. But this is another delusion. People think that there's some power up in the sky that's going to make sure everything works out fairly. Cosmic justice is what Thomas Sowell calls it. They don't realize that life is full of tragedy and atrocity and barbarity. It's not fair. It's not fair. But it's the way things are. It's not fair, but it's the way of the world. Here's what I finally have to say to my co-racialist here in the year 2021. If you want to walk with dignity, if you want to be truly equal, recognize that white people cannot give black people equality. Black people have to earn equal status. Please don't get angry with me because I'm on the side of black people here. Still, I must insist that equality of dignity, of standing and respect, of security in your position in society, of the ability to command the respect of others, these are not things that can be handed over. These are things that must be wrested with one's bare hands from a cruel and indifferent world. We have to make ourselves equal. No one can do it for us. Thank you. You know, it can be really hard to find the right book or audio book or podcast. With all the content that's available to us today, you could spend as much time looking for your next book as you actually spend reading it. But with Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've read, which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. I've had personal experience with Scribd, and I really enjoy it. So I'm urging you to consider subscribing. With Scribd, the world's most fascinating library is at your fingertips. It's all for just $9.99 a month. You can explore all of your interests in any format, millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You'll enjoy instant access to Scribd's entire library for less than the cost of a single book. It couldn't be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com slash Glenn to get your free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash Glenn with two N's to get 60 days of Scribd for free. You won't be sorry. Wow, uh, thank you very much for those uh, provocative, stimulating uh, remarks. Uh, I just wanna remind members of the audience that you can click the little Q&A button and you can type in a question. I'm sure there are things that you heard that, uh, uh, that you liked and made you think, but uh, if you're like most college students, faculty, and other members of the community, there are probably a few things that uh, you haven't heard before or that you're not used to hearing. 
on a college campus and you might have some uh, uh, you might have some reactions or might want some clarification. I guess I'll, I'll take the privilege of sort of starting things off with a question or two myself. One, just by, by way of background, this was implicit in, Glenn, in your remarks, but I'd like to bring it out a little bit more fully. Um, you referred to uh, the arguments that a very uh, influential economist such as Gary Becker and you know Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, others made about how uh, market competition uh, can can play a role in, if not in eliminating completely, completely at least reducing racial discrimination. And the argument was simply that uh, employers or other market participants, lenders, et cetera, uh, pay a price for engaging a preference or a taste for preferring people on ba uh, dealing with people on a basis other than merit and therefore competition among employers, lenders, whatever it might be, will tend over time to sort of squeeze out or at least severely discipline the extent to which racial preference can be accommodated on the market. Now that argument goes back, what, to the 1960s. Um, it certainly wasn't always universally accepted among the general public, uh, but, but it seems to me that most economists thought that analysis of discrimination was basically correct, even though they might have some quibbles on the margin. It appears that today, in 2021, and maybe for the last five years, 10 years, even among economists, that argument seems to have fallen out of favor. I don't know whether it's a suspicion that competition doesn't really work in general, that it's more uh, their market frictions, or maybe it has to do with institutional racism, I don't really know. But could you comment a little bit on how economists thinking about discrimination on the market seems to have changed quite a bit in recent years? Yeah, I can. That, that's, uh, that arbitrage argument, uh, you can't sustain discriminatory outcomes in the face of competition if the discrimination is based on the indulgence of an employer's preference, because there will exist some margin somewhere of employers or potential employers who don't ha have the anti-Black preference, uh, they will see the opportunity of effective uh, profit that could be made by employing the workers that the racist employer doesn't want to employ or employing them at wages above what the racist employer is willing to pay them, and they'll gain market share. Uh, this is Gary Becker. Uh, the uh, Economics of Discrimination. I think that book is like 1955 or 1956. Um, now, I think there's a lot of evidence supporting that, obse uh, uh, that observation. Uh, Becker made something of this in his original work and others have followed on. Uh, the implication is that where you see persisting racial disparities controlling for the, in wages, controlling for the productivity of the workers, you run a regression you try to explain the variation of wages in a population, you control for their human capital, and you see that a coefficient on a race dummy variable is a negative coefficient, they are getting less on average, you would expect that to be more prominent in places where there are barriers to entry in the industry in question, where there are limitations in the capital market so that uh, this arbitrage operation can't get, get itself going. And I think Becker, in the original work pointed to that and others have, uh, have shown that, uh, that that is also the case. Uh, also, and I think Walter Williams uh, is, uh, was uh, the one who was uh, prominent in making this point, 
but historically, and Thomas Sowell's historical examples are uh, uh, many. There are many historical examples in which racist employers have basically used the power of government to restrict the entry of competition. Uh, South Africa, for example, had to employ explicit law against hiring black people in industrial positions that they wanted not to see black people occupy because otherwise the firms would have gone ahead and violated the social uh, restraint on, uh, on integration in their workforces in, in pursuit of profit. Now you ask me, has this argument lost favor amongst economists and why? Well, some economists, yeah. And I think some of the studies, you know, the famous resume studies where you send out, you know, and you get solicitations of employment that are, uh, biased against Blacks based on comparable resumes, things of that kind, audit studies. But I would just call the uh, interested students' attention to the work of uh, James Heckman, who I think has been very effective in casting doubt on the extent to which you could make an inference about market outcomes from the observations that uh, researchers are drawing about uh, resume study bias and things like, or even tester bias. These are not measuring the marginal uh, action in, in the market. They're measuring the average act. You could look at Heckman's piece, for example, in the Journal of Economic Literate, Journal, Journal of Economic Perspectives, 1998. It's been a while, but uh, so on. Anyway, um, I don't know why uh, everybody is lining up to uh, affirm this uh, deep insight from economics, uh, but maybe I could uh, flip the uh, flip the question on you, Peter, and ask you why are economists not unanimous in uh, seeing that the minimum wage is a very poor way of trying to raise the uh, income of workers? <laughs> That's a good question. A lot of the things that I was taught in my graduate training that I thought were universally or nearly universally right. recognized, apparently uh, 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 th that no longer holds, but uh, yeah, that, that's a great, great answer. Let me um, uh, move on to a few questions from some of our students. There's okay. some professors asking questions too, but let me get to the student questions first uh, before the professors uh, ask some more, uh, some trickier ones. Um, so one uh, question from a student is, um, I, I know that you're, in your talk, you've sort of diagnosed what you see as the problem and outlined in a very general way what may what might be the path forward, but when you're talking about something like social capital, which um, you know changes emerges and changes very slowly, um, are there specific strategies that you would recommend for persuading people to uh, engage in different modes of development or to try to embrace or change the social capital that's available to them? In other words, what are some practical steps that would help to bring about reductions in racial inequality, given the theoretical framework that you've outlined, you know, besides writing books and articles and giving speeches and so forth? Yeah, well, you know, you're not going to like my answer. I don't know is my answer. And I don't need to know in order to diagnose the problem correctly, which is what I'm trying to do. I mean, we could begin to have a conversation about that. It's going to be contentious. Um, I could say that you should try to... Uh, design the incentives built into social policy so as to encourage marriage and intact families. And then we're going to have an argument. Um, you know, I could say that uh, government is not the answer to everything. Actually, that's true. 
That's true. Government policy is not the only game in town. Uh, this is a conversation that's going on amongst people in communities where there are choices to be made about how they live their lives, how they, you know, uh, organize themselves and so on. Uh, we could talk about the culture, not, not just policy, but what's on television. What, what is Hollywood doing? How, how, what's the narrative? What are the messages that are being sent out to people? We could talk about education. How are children being uh, raised and educated and so on through our institutions of public education in order to think about what they can do in their lives? I noticed that your center uh, focuses on entrepreneurship. I think that's a good thing. I, I think some of the answer to the disparity is to be found in the uh, entrepreneurial and in inventive behaviors of people in various communities. What about charter schools? Those are opportunities for entrepreneurship in a, in a certain way, not just for making money, but for making a better society by finding ways of effectively delivering educational services to people who need it. And it's an anathema to half of the political um, you know, spectrum. Uh, charter schools are the bad thing because the teachers union opposed the competitive pressures of alternative supply and so on. We could talk about law enforcement. What do you do with unruly behavior? How do you discipline it? What incentives do you communicate by the institutions of, uh, of uh, law enforcement and, and, and punishment, uh, et cetera? I've written a book about mass incarceration. I, you know, I'm not saying lock up people and throw away the key. I might be more for saying if people break the law and you take them into custody, try to use that opportunity to, um, to facilitate their development one way or another, but these are, these are touchy matters. But I don't have a magic bullet here. I'm not gonna pretend that I do. So just following up on that, I mean, are you, are you an optimist or a pessimist about what we can expect in the next few decades? Because it seems like at least, you know, there are fads and fashions that sort of can change quite rapidly, but it seems now that the kind of approach you're articulating is certainly not the most popular one among the loudest voices. Rather, it's the so-called anti-racism movement, emphasis on structural racism and so forth, seems to have the ear of many people today. So what, what do you anticipate as the prospects for improvement in the coming decades? I'm a pessimist. Um, I'd like to be wrong about this. Um, I think my side, quote unquote, is losing uh, the battle. I think it's a rear guard action uh, that you see, let's say, in the K through 12 schools against so-called critical race theory. I mean, I think there are excesses on the right in terms of creating this demon called critical race theory, which people don't even know exactly what it is and what their opposing agents have a sense that kids are being uh, wrongly educated around racial issues. But uh, and, and I do think that kids are being wrongly educated around racial issues, although it's not a grand conspiracy to, you know, to turn kids against their own country or something. You can overplay. I would not, you know, try to legislate uh, what kids are taught in schools. I think that's a local affair, school committees and so forth and so on. But I'm a pessimist. I think the, um, uh, the I'm a pessimist not only about the questions of, uh, the condition of African-American society, but but about the well-being of our country more broadly. 
Um, I think the the narrative of black victimization has just taken on a life of its own. Uh, I heard a sitting member of Congress say with respect to the um, migrants crossing the Mexican border into Texas who were congregating at the Del Rio and so forth, mostly Haitian. Uh, there was a big brouhaha, as you know, about the border patrol people and their horses and the reins of the horses and so on. The member, sitting member of Congress compared that situation to slavery. And I thought, my God, uh, I thought this trope, this, this, this uh, act, this performance, Black people are hated by America. America's institutions are fundamentally corrupt and they're fundamentally racist, has gotten to the point that the experience of African-American slavery 150 years ago is being appropriated on behalf of what? Open borders for Haitians to walk across? Maybe you want them to walk across. We could debate that, but it's not slavery. And yet so comfortable are advocates in this kind of language and so intimidated are people. As soon as that kind of message got out, the Biden administration bent over backwards to prove that, well, no, no, we're not doing that. You know. And my, my, the point I'm trying to make here is not about the specific issue of uh, border uh, uh, issues. It's that the rhetoric of victimization is so powerful and it's so seductive and it's become so legitimate that people just use it reflexively. And I don't, I don't know how to, how to uh, get out of that box. So I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic about a movement. They call it Black Lives Matter. Black lives do matter. I agree. Now, if you've got eight or 9,000 homicides a year in which Black people are being murdered, and you've got a handful of cases in which police officers behave inappropriately and extirpate Black life, that's bad. Those police officers should be confronted. But how could you possibly be fostering the integrity of Black life while having absolutely nothing to say to your community about the behavior of people in your community who are extirpating Black life. Um, I mean, condemning them relentlessly. I mean, calling them what they actually are. Uh, I don't mean making excuses for them, and I don't mean looking the other way, and I don't mean waving it and saying there's nothing to see here. Now, okay, I am the conservative-oriented guy that I am, so, you know, dismiss me if you will. But the situation, the, the intellectual and political failure reflected in the situation is what causes me to be relatively pessimistic about this, all of the organs of cultural power in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the MacArthur Foundation in Hollywood and uh, so on, in the universities, all of the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, mobilization, uh, it seems to me, ignores the points that I was trying to call our attention to in my remarks about the development narrative. And so for that reason, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel that I'm kind of, you know, tilting at windmills a little bit, but I feel like I have to go ahead and say it, call it the way that I see it and 
do the best I can. So just following up on the, to combine some other questions here on the, on the rhetorical point, could you briefly comment on how the language has changed? For example, the shift in the meaning of the term racism from, you know, uh, racial animus, animus toward deliberate animus towards people of, a, of another racial group to, you know, some to so-called structural racism, uh, the idea that uh, if, if outcomes are different among groups, then that can be explained uh, by, by racism. Uh, so uh, the way we talk about, uh, maybe another example would be the shift from an emphasis on equality, which typically referred to things you've mentioned already, like equality under the law, to the concept of equity, which again refers to how outcomes are distributed among members of different groups. How do you think that plays, that shift in terminology plays into these conversations? Well, okay, I would, wouldn't I? This is me. I think it's transparent. Uh, I think what you have are disparities, and there's not any doubt that you have disparities. Now, uh, equal opportunity plus disparities shifts the burden onto the parties who are lagging behind. And, you know, that becomes a question of why. Equity is, a, is, is, is the taking equity as the norm is basically defining an outcome as illegitimate unless it shows parity. So ipso facto, the existence of the disparity is an indictment of the system for the person who talks about equity. People don't want to face the possibility that uh, some of, and this is this is what I was getting at in my talk, and I I know that it's it's difficult to territory. And I could be wrong. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm infallible, but here's the provocation that I'm trying to bring to bear. People don't want to face the possibility that um, the system is absolutely okay, but it's that the people who are lagging behind who have got some issues. I'm not saying that they're intrinsically incapable. That was not my argument. But I mean, let me give an example of what I'm talking about, equity versus equality. Uh, there was a controversy at the Georgetown Law School not long ago, where a woman, Sandra Sellers, who was a member of the faculty, an adjunct lecturer, was caught on an open mic reporting uh, to her colleague that uh, students lagging at the bottom of her class in terms of the grade performance were disproportionately Black students. This is at Georgetown Law Center. It's one of the premier law schools in the country. She says, unfortunately, ones at the bottom are disproportionately Black. It's like that way year after year. She didn't know she was being recorded. She was being recorded and it became public. And there was a huge firestorm of protest from Black students and faculty and then others at the law school. This woman was fired from her job for the racist comment that she made. Why is it a racist comment to accurately report that the poor performance systematically year in and year out in her classes were Black? Why is that racist? Only if you presume that their poor performance is the responsibility of the school and not of themselves. Now, in a way, I would say it is the responsibility of the school because the school is practicing affirmative action and it's admitting students of color with lower SAT score and grade profiles than others. This is an elite law school. So the school practices affirmative action. Kids come in with lower test scores and grades in their previous study and they end up at the bottom of the class. Well, 
this is something a statistician would have told you was uh, was predictable. If the grades in uh, in college and the test scores on the law school aptitude test are correlated with post-admissions performance and you have a identifiable population of students, black students who are admitted with lower criteria along those things that are correlated with post-admissions performance, then it's a statistical necessity that at least on the average, the post-admission performance in that population is gonna be lower because the pre-admissions criteria that you use to select them were less favorable and those criteria are known to be correlated with performance. Now, people can't even, I'm saying, the progressive faculty of Georgetown Law Center cannot even take responsibility for the inevitable consequence of their own preferential admissions policy. And rather than asking the question, how can we help our black students who are struggling to perform better, they instead invent systemic racism within the institution as the bad guy to blame. How is this helping black people? I mean, how is it fostering equality? It, 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 it's a kind of patronization. It, it, it's a kind of uh, patting on the head. It's patting them on the head. We don't expect you. To, to be as good, we, you know, and I'm sorry, maybe I've lost the thread of your question. I've, I, I forgot what's no, what you're right, you're right on it. Yeah. No, no, that's a great answer. Let yeah, me move. I'm to saying there's, there's no, there's nothing, there's no equality except equality. Equity is, 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 is a dodge. It's a fudge and everybody knows it. Everybody knows, anybody sitting in the classroom knows, any, anybody who's hiring these people coming out knows uh, what the uh, objective differences in performance are. And you can call it equity if you want to, but if people are not performing, they're not performing. That's the only path to equality in my view. Thank you. Um, let, let me um, address a question that's raised by one of my faculty colleagues. I um, mean, it, it, it refers indirectly to another term that we hear a lot these days, and that's the concept of intersectionality. The idea that that there are different characteristics of persons and groups, race, of course, but also gender, maybe sexual orientation or identity, nationality, disability status, and so forth, you know, that intersect in particular ways. The specific question refers to a paper, which I don't know if you, uh, if you saw it, came out last year in the Quarterly Journal of Economics by Raj Chetty and several co-authors. I don't have the exact site handy, but uh, the, the results show that conditional on family income, uh, black sons end up lower in the income distribution than white sons, but there is no difference in the income distribution between black and white daughters, suggesting that maybe if social capital is the driver, that, that there's a, a, a gap between black and white social capital for young men that maybe doesn't exist for young women. So I don't know if you are, remember that study specifically, but if you wanna talk in general about how race might interact with gender and other characteristics to lead to some of the issues that people are talking about today. Well, there's some there. I, I don't know if I have anything useful to say about it. I'm not familiar specifically with Chetty's finding, although I've heard it, I've heard it reported in other sources. There's something there uh, when you look at 
the fact that uh, I know it's almost two to one black women, the black men who are matriculating at four year institutions of higher education. Uh, the uh, SAT test takers, again, it's like 60% of the black SAT test takers are women. Um, the, the violence and uh, criminal participation uh, statistics are, uh, the racial disparities are vast, but uh, men are uh, vastly overrepresented amongst those who are, who are doing poorly along that dimension. Um, and I could speculate here, but I'd only be speculating, okay? Now, single parent families, you know, two out of three black kids are raised by a mother alone. Is the consequence for child development more deleterious for boys than for girls and mother-headed families? Please don't get mad at me. I asked the question. I don't know the answer to it, but I've been invited to speculate about why we might have these uh, gender differences amongst African-Americans and social outcomes. And I don't see how you could avoid that hypothesis that would have to be looked at more carefully by somebody with data who knows what they're doing. Um, so, uh, there could be as well institutional responses. It may be that to the extent that the people who talk about systemic racism have a point at all, that that point uh, weighs more heavily and uh, adversely against African-American boys slash men than girls. I don't know that to be the case, but that would be another thing to speculate about. Institutions can tolerate in some sense more readily uh, take school discipline, where the suspension rates are very high for adolescent kids who are of color, uh, but for boys more so than for girls, et cetera. Maybe it's easier to handle misbehaving girls in a way that you don't have to expel them from the institution. Again, forgive me for speculating, but you invite me to, to uh, think about why we have these gender differences. So, yeah, thank you. There's actually a follow-up question that asks whether mass incarceration might be relevant to this discussion as well, given that, of course, males of any race are incarcerated at much higher rates than females. Could that lead to a, a, a gender imbalance in the marriage market that could also be driving some of the social dynamics we're discussing? Yeah, that's a very old hypothesis in one form or another. William Julius Wilson, the sociologist, um, in his book, uh, When Work Disappears, in his book, The Truly Disadvantaged, these books are 25 years old now, but uh, he called it the marriageable pool hypothesis, and he had data uh, on local marriage markets, cities around the country, where he looked at the marriageable men, and this had to do with not being in prison, being employed, uh, etc. He would match up cohorts by age, and he would look at the number of women and the number of marriageable men, and he created an index, and that ratio of marriageable men to women was well below one. It was well, sometimes even below 0.9, uh, and so you get, you get a lot of implications out of that. It's, there's a scarcity of partners on one side of the marriage market. You, 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 know, you could uh, talk about the family instability, about the, the extent to which Men who, in fact, are marriageable are also their bargaining position within households is different because the alternative options for their partners are not as rich. And so they can do things inside the partnership that they might not be able to get away with otherwise. And that could have some larger impact. So I, I credit uh, Derek Neal, uh, the economist at the University of Chicago, has been looking at the implications of 
you know, removal of men from community into institutions of incarceration for the economic outcomes in uh, black communities. So I, I think that's something to, to, to consider. I mean, in my 2008 book, which you were kind enough to mention, uh, Race, Incarceration, and American Values, I talk about the collateral consequences of uh, the institution of incarceration on the scale that it had grown to through the 90s and the uh, first decade of the 20th, 21st century uh, for communities. I mean, there's all kinds of men don't stay in prison. They come out. They come out of prison having been influenced by the experiences that they had while they were in there. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, gangs becoming uh, fragmented and, in fact, more lethal because they don't have the stewardship of the more senior gang members who have been in, themselves incarcerated and taken out of the picture and so on. So, I mean, you know, we could spend a whole afternoon talking about, about that. Right. But, but, but it's such a huge factor, it would be surprising if, it, if it, you couldn't find uh, that it was having knock-on effects. So let me uh, try to paraphrase a question from a student. I mean, I know you you don't shy away from the tough questions, and this one is 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 a little bit more tough. I'm I'm, I'm going to paraphrase and then try to tie it into a broader issue that maybe you can address because uh, I think you've sort of touched on this already. But the question is from a student who identifies as an African American student attending a predominantly white institution, which I assume is Baylor, and th the question relates to the concern that. Um, the sorts of claims that you're making, both theoretical and descriptive, can be perceived as uh, offensive or as demeaning that both for uh, black students and maybe faculty who receive uh, this, receive them, but also maybe they reinforce to white students and faculty this idea that, well, the black students and faculty who are here are maybe different from you. Maybe they came here, you know, they got... Uh, special uh, consideration to be at the university, does this lead to, I mean, how does this affect sort of the social fabric across racial groups within an institution, you know, like a university? This is an important question. I don't, I don't want to shrink from it at all because the, as I understand it, the motivation behind it has merit. If you talk like this, Lowry, uh, washing all this dirty linen in public. I mean, let's credit that the things that I'm saying are descriptively accurate. Now, if I'm getting it wrong, I'm getting it wrong. I'm, it's slander, okay? It, it's it's a mischaracterization of the situation, and that should just simply be dismissed. You don't, you know, no, you're actually wrong about the 70% born out of what? Like, you're actually wrong about the uh, academic achievement gap. You're actually wrong uh, about the homicide rate. But I don't think I'm wrong about those facts. I think those facts are accurate. Uh, you bring those facts to the table here in a mixed environment. Don't you know you're giving aid and comfort to racists and you're humiliating uh, people of color? So I don't want to aid racists and I don't want to humiliate anyone. That leaves me with a difficult problem. Um, I can sugarcoat, look away, obfuscate, um, lie, uh, 
or I can stay in touch with reality and put the truth as I see it in play for debate and let the chips fall where they may. Everybody's going to have to make their own call about that. Uh, I can't be sure, say that I don't go down the road of talking about the hard stuff. Say I don't do it. Say I sugarcoat. That the person who hears it, I don't go down that road and hope so they don't hear it, isn't already thinking whatever it is that they're thinking. I mean, you know, newspapers, <laughs> I'm trying to search for the right example. Let me, here, here's one from my, uh, my home institution, Brown University, where an urban uh, college, we sit in the middle of Providence, Rhode Island, up on a hill. Providence is uh, mixed socioeconomically and there are poor people in Providence. Some of them are black, some of them are brown, some of them are white. Crimes happen up here on our campus. Kids get mugged, their stuff gets stolen. It used to be that when the university would report about an event, it would be an announcement that would go around by email to everybody in the community. Burglary has occurred, robbery has occurred, assault has occurred. A description would be given of the assailant if one was available. So tall, male, female, dressed in this way, Hispanic looking, black looking, et cetera. A few years ago, the university decided that the Department of Public Safety could no longer give that information. Now they were intending, of course, in so doing, to stifle the stereotyping. They didn't want to have kids in the community because most of the offenders actually were of color, thinking that anyone of color is affected them because most of the people that the kids are seeing of color are other students, not potential assailants. So they were trying to manage the information in order to avoid a stereotype. So now, whenever there's an event, here's my theory. My theory is that the typical observer who picks up the newspaper and sees that there was an event assumes that the assailant was of color because they're not provided with the information about it one way or the other. And because the background data suggests that more likely than not, the assailant was of color. What's better, actually saying what happened or letting people make their own assumptions about what happened? Um, okay, maybe that wasn't the best example, but what I, the thing I'm trying to defend here is that we're not uh, public relations agents in the university. We're not image management people. Uh, we're not in, in the advertising business. We're in the truth business. We're in the business of getting to the bottom of things. That is the only path to a, a durable management of these problems, is to stay in touch with the objective conditions. Now, would I say uh, without qualification, you know, Black kids are just not doing very well or something like that? No, I would want to be careful about that. But, but if affirmative action is creating, as I gave the example of the Georgetown Law Center, I don't know anything about Baylor, but if it's creating differences after the fact in the actual performance of students by race, you can believe that people see that. Not speaking of it doesn't make it go away. So forgive me for being, 
I said I was not going to pull any punches. I, I said, you know, I wasn't going to mince any words. And maybe I'm taking too much of a kind of pleasure in being the town crier who comes out and says the emperor has no clothes. And I should be more circumspect about that. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know. But what I do know is that the facts will out in the end, no matter what. And, you know, we can spend our time trying to prettify something or we can look it in the deadly in the face and then try to deal with it the best we can. Well, we certainly like our guests at the Free Enterprise Forum to speak from the heart and not to pull any punches. And you certainly certainly delivered uh, in terms of style as well as substance. So um, we're about out of time. And I want to thank you again, uh, Glenn, for taking the time to speak with us tonight. I know it's been um, uh, super, st uh, super stimulating and interesting and provocative talk, exactly the kind of thing uh, that we had in mind. I'm going to take the liberty. I don't know if other people can... If you all, you all can see in the chat window, I'm putting in links to Glenn Lowry's official homepage at Brown, also his Twitter feed, and also his Substack. if you want to follow him and uh, keep up with his writings, both academic and popular. And I'm sure that if you think of a follow-up question later, you want to drop him an email. Um, if he can, he would be happy to uh, respond. So once again, please, everybody, uh, Join me in uh, giving a virtual clap to Glenn Lowry for speaking to us tonight. Uh, this this uh, session will be available on the Boss Center for Fr uh, Entrepreneurship and Free Enterprise uh, YouTube site on our YouTube channel. If you just Google search Baylor Free Enterprise, you can get to all of our stuff, or you can just do a YouTube search for Baylor Free Enterprise. You'll find in a couple of days uh, a version of this talk and also all of the previous talks uh, in this series and the other series uh, that we sponsor. So once again, hope all of you have a great uh, evening and the rest of the week. And thanks to Glenn Lowry for speaking to us tonight.